Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew. I serve as a pastor here and have the privilege of walking us through our passage uh, this evening. So if you, have, if you have your Bibles, grab them, open up to Philippians chapter 1. As we come to the tail end of this chapter, Philippians chapter 1, and summer is upon us. You can always tell when summer has arrived or when we believe summer has arisen is when uh, you walk into the sanctuary and we have our ceremony of the fans already started and executed, trying to pump as much cool air into this place. It can get piping hot. We're very grateful to John and Alex and his team and and the work they do every Sunday helping us get set up uh, so that we might gather together in this capacity and worship in the way that we do. Hopefully you have plans this weekend. It's good to see you on Memorial Day weekend that you've been able to make it here. Uh, I know uh, having the, many of you have the day off tomorrow and a lot of folks are taking trips or at least planning some type of event or occasion to celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow. More Memorial Day in my house is always a, a special day. I, I grew up with my father who served in the National Guard and he rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He was a chaplain. He uh, was actually the state chaplain for Louisiana, which is where I was born and raised. And and as a result, Memorial Day was always a special time in our, in our we always celebrated doing some special things. One of the ways, we'd always fire up the barbecue, and we'd have a barbecue on Memorial Day. Now, uh, understand that barbecue, in my mind, does not mean hamburgers and hot dogs. That's not a barbecue. Uh, that's grilling out. That's what we call that. And so what we call barbecue, we're referring to something where you turn the temperature kind of low and you cook it for a long time, something, a pork or beef or something along those lines that you're going to smoke out before you eat it. That's the way we did it. And then we'd also spend some of the time on Memorial Day is watching uh, documentaries or movies that were uh, themed around war and combat and some of the things that that have happened over the course of history. I remember back in 1998, uh, not long after uh, Saving Private Ryan came out, and that became one of my go-to movies for Memorial Day. I think it's it's an incredible depiction of, of uh, World War II era. Uh, of course, it was directed by Steven Spielberg and it started in by Tom Hanks. You put those two together, you're going to get something magical. And so Saving Private Ryan in 1998 won several Academy Awards. It tells a phenomenal, phenomenal story. And if you're familiar with the movie, you know that uh, the plot of the movie turns on a search and rescue mission where a general who's written, uh, I think, four letters to, or one letter to one mom who lost four kids in combat And she had a younger son who was still alive, and he did not want to have to write another letter. So he said, okay, I'm going to send a special team and squad to go and search for Private Ryan and save him, bring him back so he can go home and be with his mom once again. And so he enlisted John Miller to lead this squad and to uh, cross war-torn territory to find Ryan and to, again, bring him back home. And it's a powerful movie because by the time you get to that point and they're with Ryan and before the movie comes to a close, you you discover how many sacrifices have been made as many people of the squadron, I think all but maybe one or two guys actually lost their lives, including John Miller. And there's a scene towards the end of the movie, one of the most powerful scenes you can watch on a movie where he's uh, lying there and he's on the brink of death and, and Ryan is standing over him. And Miller looks up at Ryan, kind of grabs his hand and he... And he says these words. He looks at him and says, now, earn this. Earn it. Of course, he was telling Ryan to live a life that would earn the sacrifice that he has just made for him and the sacrifice that many others had made so that he could return to his mom. So he's saying, earn it. Earn this. Those are the last words that he heard from, from Miller. And then you move to, uh, the the movie kind of shifts to present day, and you find an older Ryan who's on the back end of life, and he's visiting the graveyard where Miller was buried, and he approaches the tombstone, and 
as he gets to the tombstone, you can see just all that he's processing and the emotions just, that's just waging in his eyes. And he gets to the tombstone and he kneels down and then Ryan makes this statement. He says, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all you did for me. I hope I earned what all you did for me. Then he rises to his feet and just the emotions of that moment begin to take over and it's as though he's having a nervous breakdown, wondering about this crisis of did I do enough to earn the sacrifice that was made for me and then his wife comes and stands beside him and, and he turns his attention to her and he asks her, or he doesn't ask her, he says, tell me that, I'm a, that I've lived a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. And it's one of the most powerful moments you can watch in a movie. I mean, you can't watch that movie unless you're a robot without weeping, right? It's one of those types of scenes, a very powerful moment where this guy is wondering, have I done enough to earn the sacrifice that was made for me? Now, I do contend that that is a powerful moment, but I will also contend that if you think well about what that is saying, although it's a powerful moment, it is a very paralyzing message. It is a paralyzing message. I mean, can you imagine living your entire life wondering if you've earned the sacrifice or if you were worth the sacrifice someone else made on your behalf? Can you imagine the weight that that would apply, the pressure that you would feel under if you were living trying to prove or just wondering, never knowing for certain if you were worth the sacrifice that someone else made? Now, I ask you to consider that because when you step into tonight's passage and get in verse 27, it sounds like Paul writes something that sounds very similar to what Miller said to Ryan before dying. He says in verse 27, he tells the church at Philippi, and by extension, you and I today, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. At first glance, it seems as though he is saying, now earn the sacrifice that was given for you. Earn this. And if we're not careful, we'll take that and we'll run with it in a direction that we're not supposed to run with it in this passage because there is a big difference between the gospel of Christ and the movie Saving Private Ryan. In the movie, of course, the squad was following orders given to them by a general and they were going in search for a man that they did not know and that they did not ultimately love. But when we consider the gospel, what's our story? The gospel is God sent his son into the world to live and to die and to rise again, to give his life as a sacrifice of atonement for people he did love and for people he did know. It's a completely different perspective. It's a completely different paradigm when you consider this. So what we want to consider as we reflect on these words, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, we need to know right off the bat that Jesus did not die so that you and I could live our lives trying to prove our worth to him in response. But instead, Jesus died in order to declare our worth to him. And so in response to that, how now shall we live kind of mentality, we live in response to that love and in response to that sacrifice, not trying to earn it, but to honor it. We live to honor the sacrifice that Christ made for us. This is where the Christian life is lived. We are living to honor Jesus for all that he lived for, all that he died for, all that he rose from the grave for. And it is this concern that is driving Paul now in this letter. If you've been journeying with us up to this point through Philippians, the first 26 verses, Paul is dealing with his own kind of situation and circumstances, his own perspective, and he's interacting on that front. But in 27, he turns the corner and he talks to the church. 
And he talks about their situation and what he wants for them. And he says, this is my chief concern. That's where the word only sits first in verse 27. It's there for a point of emphasis. It's, it's as though Paul is kind of saying, okay, this, just this one thing is what I want to communicate from here on out. And what I want you to hear and what I want you to know is or what my, my concern is for you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. But that doesn't mean that you live a life trying to earn that sacrifice, but you live a life and you become a church that honors that sacrifice. And then he goes on to unpack that in this, and really it's one sentence in Greek, verses 27 through 30 is just one sentence. And there's about four characteristics uh, that we find there that speak to being a church worthy of the gospel. How do we live to honor the sacrifice that Christ has made for us? And we're going to see four characteristics, and each one of these characteristics are woven together. It's four threads woven together, and they are interdependent upon each other. Meaning if you pull one thread, the whole thing comes unraveled. So we have to see how these things build upon each other if you and I are going to be a church worthy of the gospel. If we're going to be a church honoring the sacrifice that was made to make us who we are today. So we find here in verse 27, the first characteristic, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first characteristic is that a church worthy of the gospel is one who rests her authority or her loyalty with Christ. We rest our loyalty, our allegiance with Christ. And you see that in those four words, let your manner of life. Now, those are the four words. And, but to be honest with you, we, we have to do a little digging to figure out what that actually is referring to. We don't go Greek very often. And to be honest with you, we don't have to go Greek very often. You can read your English translations of the Bible and you can come to an understanding that is faithful as it relates to the gospel, faithful as it relates to your need for the Savior and his love for you. You can read an English translation and, and draw faithful conclusions about what God intends for you. But sometimes it's, we need to kind of do some exploration in the original language of the New Testament because it adds some color, it adds some texture and some context so that we can understand what uh, Paul or what one of the other authors is really getting after. And here's one of those situations. You see, you have these four words, let your manner of life, translating one word. And it is one word used only here in all of Paul's writing. And it's a very intentional and a precise word that he's using to address the church at Philippi. It's the Greek word palatueste, and in it you have this foundation, uh, it's not a spoken language for a reason, but in it you have this root word called polis, and polis is a root word meaning city. And so what Paul is getting after here, he's saying, now live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking of your identity as a citizen of some country or some commonwealth or of some group. And then you, you consider that, and again, this is the only time Paul uses that word in his letters. Usually when he talks about the Christian life and how we should live in response to the gospel, he uses the word walk. Would you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel or walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received? But here again, he's using a specific word for a specific reason, saying getting after our citizenship. And what he's pointing out here is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have a new loyalty, a new allegiance. We belong, we belong to a new realm, a new arena, a new kingdom. You see this when you jump down to chapter 3, verse 20, and there he makes it very clear. He explains the nature of this citizenship, the nature of this loyalty. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, but our citizenship, it's a similar word to what he's using 
earlier in our passage tonight, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. We are God's people. We are citizens of his kingdom. This is the manner of life that we are to live. We are to live out the fact that we are a part of the kingdom of God right now. Paul would say something very similar in Colossians chapter 1 where he says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So he's talking about our loyalty, our allegiance to a new kingdom, to a new realm, to a new reality and saying this is what you need to live in light of. Now, the reason why that's so brilliant And the reason why that is so significant is because Philippi is a colony of Rome. So Philippi is not near Rome, but it is a a Roman colony. And the citizens of Philippi, though they're surrounded by other cities that aren't necessarily colonies of Rome like they were, they had a lot of pride in who they were and the city that they lived in. A lot of pride that said, I'm a Roman citizen, and as a result, there are certain privileges and rights that I have that that aren't awarded to other people who are non-Roman citizens. So they 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 knew what this word meant, what it meant to live as a good citizen, a part of a commonwealth, being a part of a major empire. They knew what that meant. And Paul's writing, using this word, saying, you used to be all excited about belonging to Rome. I'm going to do you one better. You belong to the kingdom of God. You are to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are now a citizen in his kingdom. And when you consider how Philippi was a, uh, many people described Philippi as a little Rome, meaning if you walked the streets of Philippi, you would at times think you were in Rome. You would think you were in Rome because of the clothes that people wore. You would think you were in Rome because Latin was spoken so freely and fluidly. You would think you were in Rome because of the values and the spiritualities that were present in that city. And so you just transfer that over to what that means for you and I today as as we live as good citizens, as we live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Just as a person would walk through Philippi and be reminded of Rome, there's a sense in which people should interact with our lives interact with our church, and be reminded of heaven. There's a sense in which people should interact with our gatherings, interact with our missional communities, and get a glimpse of what life in the kingdom of God is like. They should be able to interact with those who are living to honor the sacrifice of Jesus, who rest, who's resting her loyalty with Christ, understanding that a local church in this world right now is an outpost for the kingdom of heaven. We are a colony of heaven, so to speak. And so when people interact with us, they should be reminded of heaven by how they see harmony in our relationships. They should see uh, holiness in our lifestyles. They should see humility in our loyalty to Jesus so that we say our ultimate allegiance rests in every moment of every day with Christ, who is the Lord, who is the King. And now, if you think that's, I don't know what you think about that right now, but you consider the Philippi, the Philippians, understand that since they were a Roman colony, every citizen of that city would swear that Caesar is Lord. And then later in chapter 2 of this book, Paul's going to tell the, the church at Philippi, look, you have a new loyalty, you have a new Lord, you have a new king, and he's going to impress upon them in the passage we'll look at next week that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is king. And the Philippians would 
would struggle under that. They would be pushed to the, to the fringes of society because they weren't as loyal to Caesar as they were to Jesus. And so it creates some tension in their lives, some tension that you see boil over in some of the other places that Paul went to. Right after Paul went and planted a church in Philippi, eventually he was driven out of that city. He went close to a place, a city of Thessalonica. And when he gets to Thessalonica, he starts a church there, but then persecution broke out because they too had a relationship with Rome. They too believed Caesar is Lord, and that caused problems for those who were trying to follow Jesus. So much so that when you get into Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, you read about some of the struggle. There we read, and when they, and when they could not find them, uh, referring to the disciples, the new believers in Thessalonica, they dragged Jason, who was a new believer, somebody who just put his faith in Jesus, and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, get this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, meaning they heard about what went down in Philippi, they've come here too, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're living lives that don't really fit in with the decrees and the laws of Caesar because, here it is, they're saying that there's another king and his name is Jesus. If we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must rest our loyalty with Jesus, where our allegiance rests ultimately with him in every moment of every situation. We are a colony of heaven on earth, and when people interact with us, that loyalty should be observable. And it should be observable in the way that we interact with each other, and it should be observable in the way that we interact with them. It should be observable in the ways that we go about our lives, which brings us to the second characteristic. Not only do we rest our loyalty with Christ, if that is true, if our loyalty rests with him, then that means second, we're going to draw our convictions from Christ. If he is Lord, if he is king, then we're going to draw our convictions from him. He's going to give shape to our values. He's going to give shape to our priorities. He's going to give shape to our ethics. We're going to draw our convictions from Christ. You see this if you go back to Philippians chapter 1, where right after he talks about living a life, manner, uh, a manner of life worthy of the gospel, he says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Here it is that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. I want to know that you guys are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. We draw our convictions from Christ, and you see Paul doing that here. Because one of Jesus' core convictions, one of his deepest passions concerned this idea of unity. It concerned his disciples standing firm in one mind and one spirit, sharing unity with each other. It was such a concern for Jesus that before he goes to the cross, he spends some time praying with the Father and his prayers recorded in John chapter 17. And there, if you read all that chapter, you're going to see Jesus what he's praying about in his greatest hour of need is he's praying for his disciples and for his people to live in unity, that they would stand firm in one mind, in one spirit. Paul is drawing his convictions from Christ. And if we are going to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must draw our convictions from Christ, specifically as it relates to the unity that we are pursuing so you find in John chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus prays this. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then chapter 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their, world, their word, their future disciples, you and I, basically, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in, in you, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So there's a relationship between our unity and the impact we're able to make for gospel transformation. So unity then becomes a deep conviction of Christ and it is one that we must embody. But let me, let me say this, if unity was such a conviction and a concern for Jesus that he would pray for it in that moment and Paul would promote it in his writings, then we must understand that he put such a high premium on unity that every one of our consciences should be unsettled if we are contributing to disunity. If unity isn't a conviction that we hold we need to do some soul searching. We need to do some examination. We need to figure out whether or not we are drawing our convictions from Christ. But to be honest with you, this isn't the type of conviction we get all excited about. We don't get all hot and bothered about unity. We get more hot and bothered about things like sexual immorality or financial impropriety. But what about you? How seriously do you take the conviction for unity in relation to some of those other things? Do you, have, do you hold it in high premium the way that Jesus did? Well, Jesus certainly does, and Paul pray, uh, encourages it here. He tells the church to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Now, when it comes to disunity and when we're not carrying this conviction forward, disunity often arises not so much because of gross, obvious sins that we, and everybody would kind of see and say, yeah, that's bad, we shouldn't do that, or that's bad, a church shouldn't be a part of that. Usually, disunity arises in the life of the church on the more subtle sins, on the more subtle struggles, the types of things that we overlook, the types of things that we kind of occupy ourselves that are ultimately and eternally kind of small. You know, disunity can arise in our church when we hold grudges over minor slights and we do not know what is meant when we say, okay, I'm going to, a love covers a multitude of sins. Instead, I'm going to say, no, every little slight that's against me, I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to harbor that and then my heart's going to grow bitter and eventually it's going to be divisive between me and that other person and that's going to seep out into the life of the body. Disunity often rises over seemingly over more subtle issues. It arises oftentimes in churches when a person promotes their personal preferences and puts them on the same plane as biblical principles and they can't really discern the difference between a preference and a principle and when they're clinging to their preferences as though they are biblical principles, it always puts a wedge between them and others in the church. It'll either elevate them to a plane where they're looking down on others or maybe they feel kind of slighted so they feel underneath looking up everybody's not really there and so they elevate their preferences to point of principles and when that happens, disunity arises but if we're going to say that if we're going to recognize that disunity can come in that way then we need to figure out how does unity happen in the life of a local church how do we carry this conviction forward and to that i would say that unity is something that we cannot force upon a group you can't force unity in any context you must foster it you must nurture unity you see unity is a lot like that shy preschooler If you've ever taught in our preschool ministry elsewhere, if you've ever been around preschoolers in any type of formal setting, unity's a lot like the shy one, that if you ever look at that preschooler directly or if you call that preschooler by name, they just kind of shrink back and hide. They get real sheepish and they want to hide behind a table or hide behind a a bookshelf or something like that. Unity's kind of like that. Now, you want that kid to be involved in everything. You want that kid to uh, have fun with all the other kids, but you know that if you address her directly, you're just going to scare her away. And you'll find that you can't force her involvement. But what you can do is you can foster her participation. You can foster unity by calling everyone's attention to that which is fun about the class. You foster unity when you get excited about the story that you're about to read. You foster unity when you get excited about the art project everybody's about to contribute to. 
And you call everyone's attention to something that's outside of them and something that the whole group can rally around. And as you're getting excited about whatever that is, then this, this little preschooler will creep out of hiding and she'll come and eventually sit down at the table and join the rest of the class. In other words, we take an indirect approach. We foster it. We nurture it by doing what? By calling people's attention to what's great about the church. And what's great about the church is Jesus. So we call attention to Jesus. We fix the eyes of our faith on Jesus. We fixate on the gospel. And then everyone comes and we start finding ourselves drawing closer together because we're looking outside of ourselves to the one uh, that is the only reason why we would ever be together in the first place. This is what A.W. Tozer was getting at when he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So unity is the byproduct of our shared loyalty to Jesus and the fact that we're drawing our convictions from Jesus, specifically unity. And if that is true, then if divisions arise in our church, the root issue behind that will always have more to do with our deficient understanding of the gospel than it will of any dysfunctional relationship that we might have a tendency to engage in. It always has to do with deficiencies in our understanding of the gospel. So Paul tells the church, and by extension, he tells you and I to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to draw our convictions from, I'm sorry, we're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, drawing our convictions from Christ. But then he moves on and uses another word there, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The point of our unity is so that we can move together with a shared purpose, with a shared passion, that we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And that's a colorful word, the word striving. It's the word from which we get the English term athlete. And so what, he ha- what he's envisioning here is this idea of teamwork, of people coming together in unity and living, striving, going for the faith of the gospel. And the idea behind that phrase is that the gospel would be promoted. It would be advanced, that we share a purpose together. So not only are we drawing our convictions from Christ, we are also patterning our purpose after Christ. He is setting the agenda for our church. And if we're focusing on him, following him, we will start patterning, patterning our purpose after him, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, one of the most beautiful depictions of this, when you think about unity coming before this, is how powerful unity serves that purpose. Unity serves the advancement of the gospel. Jesus would say as much in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, when he says that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And get this, he then says, by this, your love for each other, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, when we stand firm in one spirit and in one mind, when we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, that does wonders for the watching world. That showcases the beauty of Jesus who has brought us all together. And he's brought us all together, not because we earned his sacrifice, but because he's brought us all together because we're benefiting from his sacrifice and we want to honor it. So we 
we pattern our purpose then after Christ. We recognize the relationship between unity and mission, unity and the advancement of the gospel. There's a powerful picture of this in a book that some of you, I'm sure, have read. It's called Boys in the Boat. How many of you have read the story, Boys in the Boat? UW students, UW grads, yeah? It's a story about the UW uh, rowing team that back in 1936 won gold medals at the Berlin Olympics. And it's a story just kind of depicting kind of how that happened. And, and the author draws a lot of parallels and some really strong lessons from their example. And one of the things he points out is how uh, this team was a surprising team to win that event. It was a surprising team because rowing and effective crews were usually coming out of some of the Ivy League schools. And they all were all kind of cut from the same cloth. But then he said, you turned your attention to UW in early ni- or 1936. You found a team that was comprised of mostly kids from blue-collar logger towns and forestry regions, and they would come together, and he would mention how, he mentions how different they were from one another, but when they found unity in the midst of their diversity, that propelled them forward to accomplish great things. So much so that he would write this in his book. He would say, he would explain how eight individuals of varying statures, physiques, and personalities capitalized on their diversity. He said, you know, races are won by crews and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up overly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. He said, good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow, all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew. They must recognize that, accept it, and then accept the others as they are. It is an exquisite thing when it all comes together just in the right way. An exquisite thing. And Jesus would say, essentially, when my people come together in unity, they stand firm in one mind, one spirit, and they strive side by side for the faith of the the gospel. That is an exquisite thing. That is a wonderful thing that does wonders for the advancement of the gospel among the watching world. It's all tied to how we are resting our loyalty to in, uh, in Christ. We are drawing our convictions from Christ and we are patterning our purpose after Christ. Recognize that we are following Jesus together and he's setting the agenda for our lives. Now when you get into some of this idea of purpose and you begin to think more uh, readily about this, there came a moment in that same prayer in John chapter 17 when he's praying for our unity Or he would also pray for our mission. He would pray for our purpose. And he would say, he would essentially pray that we would pattern our purpose after his. He says in John chapter 17, verse 18, as the Father, talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending them. As the Father sent me to establish his kingdom in the world, I'm sending them into the world to advance the kingdom, to advance the realities of the gospel. That's why I'm sending them. And when you think about that dynamic as it relates to convictions and purpose, one of the things that is true about how Jesus conducted his life and fulfilled his purpose, Jesus was one who was characterized by spiritual integrity. 
Jesus' life and ministry, his purpose was marked by spiritual integrity. His convictions and his conduct harmonized with each other. That which he believed and how he behaved lived in sync with itself. Spiritual integrity characterized Jesus' purpose. And, and I think if we're drawing our convictions from him and if we're patterning, patterning our purpose after him, then spiritual integrity should mark our lives as well. Our convictions and our conduct should be harmonized with each other. When they are not harmonized, when there's a wedge between our convictions and our conduct, between what we say and what we do, when there is a gap there, it, it's not hard to imagine how we can lose our impact on the watching world. It's not hard to imagine how we can um, be counterproductive in our striving forward. We end up striving backward, so to speak. And the reason for that is because our we may communicate one thing with our words, but do something else with our lifestyles and our relationships and understand that what we're doing in this other world of lifestyles and relationships, that's what people tend to hear first. That's what people tend to hear louder than perhaps our message or perhaps our verbal communications. I'll prove it to you. Let me encourage all of you to just kind of grab your hands and hold it out like this. Just make a circle with your fists and hold it out in front of you. Now you're gonna hold that circle out there in front of you. Now I want you to take that circle and I want you to put it right there on your cheek. I want you to put it right there on your cheek. Now there's one person, maybe two, that actually took that circle and put it on their cheek. But that's not what I said to do, right? I said to take that circle and to put it on your cheek. But you didn't do what I said. In fact, you didn't hear the words I was speaking. You followed my actions. Your eyes led the charge. And the whole point behind that illustration is that we authenticate our message by the lifestyles that we lead. People will hear what we do oftentimes before they hear what we say. And so spiritual integrity, if we're going to pattern our purpose after Christ, that means word and deed must harmonize. They must be in sync as people, again, often hear what we do long before the hearing what we say. We authenticate the message of the gospel through the lifestyles that we're leading as it relates to our integrity, as it relates to our unity, as it relates to our loyalty to Jesus. So we want to pattern our purpose after Christ. And then Paul would go on to explain a little bit more about what this means in verse 28 when he says we're going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not, get this, frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents. So we move from this idea of spiritual integrity to this idea of living a fearless life. And he's saying we can engage this mission, this purpose together in a way that is free from being afraid of those who might oppose us or those who might think poorly about us because of our allegiance to Jesus. And so of interest in this, in this moment is this idea of social liberty, this idea that if we're going to pattern our purpose after Jesus, when Jesus lived his life, he lived a life that was utterly free from the fear of others. He did not acquiesced to the opinions and the thoughts of those around him. He was someone who had a purpose, he had a mission, he had his core convictions, and he carried those forward all the way to the cross. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient all the way through. And there were times when he was tempted to be disobedient. There was times when he was opposed in his purpose, but he refused to, again, acquiesce to the opinions and the thoughts and the pressures that came from around him. And so Paul here is saying, if you're patterning your purpose after Jesus, if you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, there's a sense in which we can be fearless of those who would oppose us. 
But one of the deepest struggles of our hearts, and I know this is true of almost every person in this room, one of our deepest struggles is that we are so obsessed with how people perceive us and what people think about us. And because we are so obsessed with what people, how people see us and what they perceive about us, oftentimes that causes us to say and do things that aren't necessarily loyal to Jesus or aren't necessarily uh, from our convictions that we're drawing from Jesus or patterning our purpose after Jesus. Usually what happens, we start becoming overly calculated in our relationships with others. We become overly measured in our relationships so that we only say and do what will elicit a positive response from people. And we live in fear of opposition. We live in fear of a poor opinion. We live in fear of being misinterpreted or misunderstood. And so that oftentimes causes us to play it safe so that we only say and do what will make people happy or elicit a, a positive response. As I've been thinking and praying about this and considering the life of our church, there's one area that I'm deeply concerned as it relates to this issue. You see, I believe that a church, I believe that unfaithfulness or lack of fidelity in the life of a church as it relates to their loyalty to Jesus, their convictions, and their purpose, I think that it happens and it can be discerned not so much in what a church may say or do. I believe it is more discernible by what a church refuses to say or refuses to do. And I think as we move forward into the future, the pressure is going to amount for us to not say certain things about the gospel and to not do certain things in light of the gospel. A lack of faithfulness as it relates to loyalty, convictions, and purpose will arise not so much in what we say and do, but in what we refuse to say and refuse to do. And this is why we must strive side by side. We need each other. We need each other to hold in check on that so that we can move forward not frightened or intimidated by external forces who might encourage or discourage us from saying and doing things that Jesus might call us to say and do. So we don't want to be a church that simply creates full of clones that's just reflecting back to the watching world images of itself. And that's what happens when we give in to the fears of social pressure, when we fear opposition, we just become a room full of clones reflecting to the world a mere depiction of itself. But you know, if we're going to be worthy of the gospel, if we're going to live to honor the sacrifice of Jesus, then we're going to go about our days in such a way that says, I'm not going to be a clone. I'm going to be a person who's being reconstituted into the image of God, and I'm going to reflect the image of my creator, not the image or the cloned image of that which was created. That's the difference between living in fear and living a fearless life. I want to reflect the image of my creator and I want our church to do that. And so when we do, we are patterning our purpose after Christ who was the image of the invisible God fully realized, fully manifest. And so we consider how we pattern our purpose after Christ and, and Paul would say this brings freedom so that you're not frightened by anything of your opponents. But then he goes on, he says something strange. He says, it always gets hard. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, now when you do this, unity, purpose, spiritual integrity, uh, when you're reflecting the image of your creator, um, it's a sign. And he says it's a clear sign. On one hand, it's going to expose unbelief in some. But then on the other hand, it's going to affirm saving faith in others. It's a clear sign that has this double-edged sword effect. D.A. Carson, a very trusted New Testament scholar, would describe this dynamic this way. Commenting on that verse, he says, your change in character, 
your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that, mu- that you must endure constitutes a sign. And that sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. And it is a sign of assurance that, though, that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. There's a sense in which these dynamics, when they're strung together, it becomes a sign to the watching world, exposing unbelief and affirming belief. Sometimes it can even do that in the church, exposing unbelief and affirming saving faith so that when you really get to the heart of the matter, we wonder, well, am I really trusting this gospel? Do I really want to follow this Jesus? And you really begin to ask that question when you look at the fourth and final characteristic. Not only are we talking about Resting our loyalty with Christ and drawing our convictions from Christ, patterning our purpose after Christ, you get to number four, and it involves enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. Enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. Now that's a strange phrase, for it has been granted to you. That word granted there is literally the word grace. It's been grace to you. It's been gifted to you, but look at the gifts. He gives too. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's one gift, faith, right? We believe because God has been gracious to us and his grace has given us the gift of faith. But then there's a second gift that nobody wants, like opening up socks at Christmas time. You just want to throw that back to mom and dad. I don't want this. This is not a good gift. Well, here, Paul would introduce a gift that's not very desirable. He would say, Not only that you would believe in Christ, but also, here it is, suffer for his sake. That's gift number two. And he's saying this is a response of God's grace towards you, that you would endure suffering for his sake. Now, don't get it twisted. When Paul talks about this gift, he's not talking about every form of suffering that exists in a fallen world. What he's talking about is suffering that is specifically related to your faith, to your loyalty, to your convictions, to your purpose in following Christ. It's suffering as a Christian for, in some way, being a Christian. This is the type of suffering, he says, is a gift. And Paul would say something very similar to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He would say, indeed, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, "If if your goal is to live a godly life, Loyal to Jesus, convictions drawn from Jesus, patterning your purpose after Jesus. If your goal is godliness, Paul says you're going to face persecution. But here he says how that's a good thing. He says if your goal is godliness and if you suffer along the way, he says that is a good thing, is a gift to you. And so we want to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And it is a gift for two reasons. One, that gift can draw you deeper in your communion with Christ so that you are identifying with Jesus in ways you never dreamt possible. This is what Paul will say in Philippians chapter three when he talks about his suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ, taking him deeper in intimacy with Jesus. That's a gift. And number two, it helps because this suffering for the sake of Christ can also have a ripple effect so that the gospel is going forward, so that for the sake of the gospel, the gospel is advancing. There's a story I read as preparation for this of a story by a guy named Mehdi Dabaj. Mehdi Dabaj was an Iranian Christian who was in prison for about 10 years. And Mehdi Dabaj uh, had multiple opportunities to go free as he would go before judges and they would say, okay, you can go free if you would just recant your faith in Jesus, deny your loyalty to him, and return to the faith of your heritage. Return to your Islamic heritage. 
And so he would go before the judges and he would be given this ultimatum time and time and time again, but he would refuse. But then the last time he went before the judge and was asked that question, this was his response. He said, he said, well, Jesus Christ is our savior and he is the son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord. That was his response. The judge didn't know really what to say, so he threw him back in prison, but word reached some other context and people started advocating for his release. Eventually, the Iranian government let Mahdi Dabaj go free, but a few days later, after doing so, Mahdi Dabaj wound up dead in a park, and all signs pointing to the fact that he was murdered due to his allegiance to Jesus. He was murdered due to his identifying himself with Jesus. But the fruit that came out of that was so, so mind-blowing that his death in that moment, enduring suffering for the sake of Christ, had a ripple effect so that the gospel began to move in ways that it had not previously moved in that country and in that context. So would you say that his suffering then was a gift, a gift of grace? Yes, a gift of grace to him, but also a gift of grace to everyone who would see the reality of Jesus through the suffering that they witnessed in Medita Bash. So a church that is worthy of the gospel is a church that is willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And I know we live in 21st century Seattle. I'm not naive. I know we're not facing imprisonment. And I know we're not being physically persecuted. I know that persecution should never be a goal. You should never put that as your ambition as a Christian. I want to be persecuted because I learned it was a gift from my pastor. No, don't say that. You want to pursue a godly life and if persecution comes, so be it. But we do live in a country where, yes, our context, there's no physical persecution, there's no immediate threat to imprisonment or anything like that, but there is a sense in which we face a type of persecution that may take an emotional form, a psychological form. It'll take the form where we are afraid of labels and we're afraid of being uh, pinned as a certain type of person because of our loyalty to Jesus or because of our convictions. We don't want to be called a bigot. We don't want to be called this. We don't want to be called that. We don't want to be associated with really crazy evangelical Christians and all that. There's a sense in which we fear emotional and psychological forms of intimidation. That might be a better word than persecution, but intimidation. And, And the question is, are you willing to endure intimidation emotionally or psychologically? Are you willing to endure being mislabeled for the sake of Christ? Is Jesus worth it? Is your loyalty to him worth it? Is your convictions being drawn from him worth it? Is you patterning your purpose after Jesus worth it? Are you willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ as a result of your relationship with Jesus? And being labeled isn't a foreign concept. It's interesting to me that if you study the background of the church of Philippi, the Philippian believers were labeled Because the Philippian believers refused to say that Caesar is Lord and they said Jesus is Lord, they were labeled atheists. Sounds strange, right? But that's what they were labeled. You guys are atheists because you're not believing Caesar is Lord. You're saying this other guy, Jesus, is atheist. And to be an atheist in the first century, it didn't carry with it this perception of intellectual credibility like it does in our society. It was a shameful designation. You did not want to be called an atheist in the religious, spiritual world of the first century. But these Philippian believers would endure that label for the sake of Christ. 
They knew Jesus as Lord and they didn't care what label was applied to them from outside of them. Enduring suffering for the sake of Christ, this gift of grace in a way that deepens our intimacy with Jesus, in a way that advances the concerns of Jesus in the world. And so when this type of thing arises, are we going to try to resolve that tension and resolve that trial by abandoning loyalty or curbing convictions or betraying purpose? Or are we going to press into that? Are we going to see those opportunities as the potential of being gifts of grace to us and gifts of grace for others who will benefit from whatever suffering we endure for the sake of Christ. I've told our staff multiple times over the past few weeks when we get together on Tuesdays, I'll, I'll tell them, you know, we want to believe the gospel and we want to hold to the gospel, not just for us. We need to believe the gospel and hold to the gospel for others. If we think it's harder and it's getting harder and harder to follow Jesus and hold to biblical convictions and gospel, a gospel worldview, if we think it's hard for us, how else do you think, how hard do you think it's going to be for others? So one of the reasons we want to hold firm in our loyalty and our convictions and our purpose isn't just for us, it's for other people's benefit. So we want to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, standing firm, moving forward, enduring suffering, not just for us, but for those around us who are also being intimidated by various external pressures to abandon orthodoxy or to abandon Bible or to misrepresent Jesus or distort the gospel. So we want to consider these things as we consider living a life and being a church worthy of the gospel. Understanding that we want to live our lives not to earn the sacrifice that was made for us, but to honor it. Now there's a place in the Lord of the Rings where the hobbit Pippin is standing at the gates of the city of Gondor. Gondor is a sacred city. It's a special place. And and in comes the great witch king or the demon king who had never entered that city before, but he had come hell-bent on destroying it. And he comes in, everybody's frightened, everybody's intimidated, everybody's wondered, worried about the future of Gondor, and Pippin was there with them, and he too was ready to shrink back, being intimidated about that moment. And just when he was about to give up and give in to his despair, he hears these horns blowing. And these horns were being blown by the soldiers, the riders of Rohan, this powerful uh, military force, and... They have shown up at Gondor at just the right time to rescue the people of that city. And what's interesting about the story is that the king of Rohan would ride to his death. He would die in his efforts to save the city and to deliver them from this opposition. And we're told that from that moment on, every time Pippin would hear a horn, his eyes would swell up with tears. Every time he'd hear the sound of a horn, the rest of his life, he would weep, he would cry. He would think about the sacrifice that was made for him. He would think about the, how he heard a horn in the distance and when he'd hear these horns, it would reawaken the memory of his salvation and the memory of the one who died for him. And he would, his heart would be recalibrated in that moment so that he would live not so much to earn that which was done for him, but to honor it. And this is the way in which we want to proceed as a church, not living to earn the sacrifice that was made for us, but to honor it. And one of the ways that we do that, uh, we do have a kind of a horn that blows every week that reminds us of the sacrifice that was made for us. And that occurs every time we approach the table and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we consider Jesus' body given for us and we consider his blood shed for us and we're reminded of the sacrifice that he was made and we come to the table participating this, in this moment, resolving to go forward and to honor this death and to honor this sacrifice together all the days of our lives.
And so we're going to do that now. I'm going to invite you to come to the table after I pray and partake of the Lord's Supper and join Bryant in worshiping through song as we commemorate Jesus' death and as we recalibrate our lives to say we're going to live to honor this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would by your grace, would you make us a church that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Would you give us grace to rest our loyalty with him? Would you give us grace to draw our convictions from him? Would you give us grace to pattern our purpose after him? And would you give us grace to endure suffering for him? God, we pray that you would recalibrate our hearts over these next few moments, that we might live to honor the sacrifice that was made in Jesus' name. Amen.